What is it about Nike, in your opinion, that it's allowed them to dominate the basketball footwear business for so many years? Well, I think that I think today, if I can sort of go backwards, and today they have probably the best product, the best designers. Um, clearly, they have the best advertising, and they have the best endorsers. I think Michael Jordan. You know, prior to Michael, as you know, George Nike had a club, a pro club with 15 or 20 really good players, like players like Jim Paxson in Portland and Phil Smith at Golden State, you know, some really with Jeff Petrie. But none of those guys could probably sell one pair of shoes. I think he gave Nike credibility in the sport. But very, I, I don't believe there's probably ever been a player other than Michael that really sells shoes. Maybe, maybe Allen Iverson uh, for, for a period of time. I think players promote the brand. There's a difference between selling shoes and promoting the brand. Promoting the brand is a credibility issue. A really good player will give a brand credibility. Um, but Jordan sold shoes. And to, to show you how extreme that belief was, when we did his first contract, Nike had the right to stop making Air Jordan at the end of his third year if he hadn't made the All-Star team, if he hadn't been rookie of the year, or if he hadn't, didn't average 20 points a game. They had, a, they had to keep paying him but they had a right to stop making the shoe and paying them a royalty. And um, I put in a, what I call a kick-out clause. I said even if he did none of those things, if he was selling a lot of shoes, it wouldn't have mattered what his statistics were. I said, how many shoes do you think would be reasonable for the kick-out clause? And Strasser said, as long as he's selling $3 million worth of product between the third and fourth year of the deal, we'll keep the deal. Well, they sold $130 million the first year. So, uh, so it was, he had a unique ability. You know, it was a great partnership. It's what partnerships are all about. He brought a company that needed a player. They marketed him aggressively. He got very involved in design. And he created a template down the road. The problem is, for me, is that I think since Michael, Nike and everybody else has been searching for the next Michael. And I don't think there's ever going to be another Michael. I think there'll be a lot of great players. I think there are a lot of great players in the league today. Michael has a number of them under the Jordan brand, including Dwayne Wade and Carmelo, Chris Paul, Derek Jeter baseball, but I think I think that just as we were searching for something new for Michael to do it differently than everyone else is doing, I'm waiting for the younger agents who have all these great young players today to come up with the next innovation, to set the bar higher again and do something different. And all people keep doing is trying to replicate the Jordan blueprint from 1984, which is now 27 years old. David, uh, have you ever had a desire to own an NBA? Yeah, at times, at times because, you know, as you know, George, what happens as you get older, you actually think you're getting smarter. It's a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous place to go. You know, you're doing, you're doing, I've done the same thing for 37 years. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think I've developed, you know, pretty good insight into the business. And because my company, Fame, got very large, we sold it, and then the people who bought it, SFX, asked me to grow it. At one point, I think I had 1,100 clients. Uh, 900 people working for me, mm. and the company was worth more than almost every NBA team. It gave me a perspective to see the business from both sides. And so, while I'll always be a player's guy, my heart's with the players, as a businessman, in collective bargaining, I understand how the owners feel as an owner. And and uh, so, I would, I'd like to try at some point in time. It would be interesting for me to have a chance to take my skills and see if you could make it work owning a team and um, 
and time will tell. Arbitration. NBA lockout. David Falk is the arbitrator, the facilitator. How would you bring this to a conclusion? Wow, great question. So in my view, Michael, two things happened in the mid-80s that changed the NBA. One is the salary cap that was instituted for six teams in 1982 and for the other 17 teams in 1983. The salary cap made it impossible for super teams like Boston and L.A. to have the depth of talent that they had prior to the salary cap. If you look at the Boston and L.A. dominated the 80s. They were in almost every NBA final. So Lakers had Kareem, Magic, and Worthy, three top 50 Hall of Fame players. And then they had Byron Scott, Michael Cooper. Their ninth guy was Bob McAdoo, who was a four-time NBA scoring champ. He would be the third best player in almost every team in the NBA today, even at age 30. The Celtics had Parrish, McHale, and Bird, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, Cornbread Maxwell. Their ninth guy was Bill Walton, another top 50 guy of all time. It's impossible today. You look at like a team like Miami, you put the big three guys together, there's no money left over to sign a fourth guy. You know, the fourth guy may be either Donis Haslam, great glue guy, but he's not going to be Bill Walton or Bob McAdoo or, player, or Scott Wedman, a player of that stature. So, so that was one thing. That was one thing that changed. Second thing that changed was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan proved that with one incredibly gifted player, and they used to call the Bulls Michael the Jordanaires back in the mid '80s when they, when they were when they weren't a good team. You know, it could change. But what's happened? What's happened? So, if you're an NBA owner and you look at only only nine teams out of 30 have won an NBA title since 1980. It's 31 years. And before this past year when Dallas won, only eight teams won a title. If you look at the formula for what makes those teams work, in such a recent history, you look at Boston in 2008, you know, Pierce Garnett, their big three, and Ray Allen, they made 75% of all the money. The fourth highest bank on the team that year was Kendrick Perkins, making 3.6. So if you're Doc Rivers, you say to Kendrick Perkins, Kendrick, your role on this team is to play great defense and rebound. I don't want you taking a lot of shots, and if you take one over six feet, you know, seat right next to me. As a role player making three six, he gets it. He's not making nine six or twelve six. Um, you can concentrate your money on three superstars who are going to carry you in today's NBA. It's less of a team sport than it was 20 years ago. It's more like a hybrid sport. It's not like boxing or golf or tennis where you're playing by yourself. And it's really not like football where you really need a lot of really great players to get to the championship. Three guys, two or three great players can carry a team to the championship. And I think where the union has made you know, a serious mistake is that from 1998 on, in 1998 the union allowed the league to put a hard cap on the stars, which we call the backs. Um, and instead of saving the money that they saved by not paying these players their full market value, they turned around and redistributed that saved money to middle players under what they call the middle class exception. So so that a team that might pay LeBron 120 and pay a middle guy, middle class exception player 40, which is 160, probably rather pay 155 to LeBron. You know, because he brings in the fans and he sells T-shirts and, and merchandise and, and, uh, and concessions. Um, 
And so if I, in my opinion, we need to go back to a situation where we basically have two pools of players. We have one pool for the stars, like they have in football with a franchise player and a, and a uh, transition player. Uh, and you have another pool. So the stars don't compete with the, with the middle-class players for the money. Um, but we don't treat the stars like middle-class players. And if you think about it, we're about to implement a system where the players are going to increase their salaries by 5.5% a year. Now, the fact that LeBron is going to get the same percentage increase in his contract as the number 13 guy on the team, to me, is absurd. You know, he should be making 15% increase. And the number 13 guy should probably get no increase. I think we've, we've treated it like socialism on the player side. And ironically, on the owner side, where we need more revenue sharing, we're not treating it like socialism. So I think the system is 180 degrees backwards. In football, by contrast, the Green Bay Packers could win the Super Bowl and compete with the New York Giants, the Chicago Bears, the big market teams, because they share all the revenue. And in basketball, when a team like the Lakers, which is a really well-run team by Dr. Buss, gets $150 million a year in local cable television, and they don't share that with Milwaukee on a significant basis, or Charlotte, or Minnesota or the smaller market teams, Memphis, it makes it impossible for the small market teams to compete. And so I think that what the owners need is to have a lot more socialism. I think what the players need is to have a lot more capitalism. And unfortunately, we've had it backwards for the last 15 years. In, in your response, David, you mentioned uh, revenue sharing. Is that a viable solution to bring st stability to the league? Absolutely. I think that when you have 30 teams and you put a team in Memphis, which probably the population, I don't know, I'm not a demographic expert, my guess is the population of Memphis you know, is probably 10% population of the L.A. television market. Mm -hmm. um, L.A. makes probably 10 times more for every game they play in revenue than Memphis does. I don't know how you could meaningfully expect a team like Memphis to compete the Lakers without sharing any more than Green Bay could compete the New York Giants in football if they weren't sharing. Um, and if I think in the current collective bargaining agreement, the owners have been pressing for parity, which I think is a good idea. The principal way you get parity is not by paying players less money. The principal way you get parity is by sharing revenue on the owner side. And if they had complete revenue sharing, um, then I think in hindsight, if I had been a consultant for both sides, I would have told the owners in 2008 when they started the negotiations, do not make one proposal to the players until you've developed a revenue sharing plan and you say to the players, our house is in order, now it's your turn. This is the savings we need from you. Instead, they've done it exactly backwards. They've asked the players to sacrifice money first. They still don't have a revenue sharing plan in place. As we sit here today, you know, 36 hours before the deadline, I think that's a strategic mistake. I think it hurts your credibility. I think the second thing that was done wrong is some of the losses that the owners receive have nothing to do with the players and have nothing to do with some decisions that are maybe improper by the owners. The coaches and the scouts, the expenses for coaches and scouts have grown astronomically, way more than the players' expenses have on a proportional basis in the last 15 years. When Michael was a rookie, he had a head coach and two assistants. Today, most teams have a head coach and six assistants. They have scouts all over the world. They have 
because we have guys coming out of high school, they have, or one year of college, they have uh, development directors and people that hold the hands of the younger players. The expenses on the management side, external to the players, have grown you know, tremendously. We need to put a cap on that. You know, we need to have more control that a team like the Knicks can't spend $40 million more on coaches and scouts than, you know, than a small market team does in, in Milwaukee. You can't be, you can't have parity. And I think those two issues have been largely overlooked in the current collective bargaining agreement. I think on the player side, I find it ironic that because the union is being run by mostly middle-class players, there's been no attempt made to increase the maximums for the stars. You know, those guys, that's like, you know, they're off to the side. They're mostly concerned with maintaining the financial levels for the middle-class players. I think it's safe to say when you go to the movies, you go to the movies because you want to see a Denzel Washington or you know, Will Smith or Al Pacino or Julia Roberts, some big star, you don't really care who the number five or six person in the movie is. In basketball, I think the fans come not so much because it's the Boston Celtics anymore or the Chicago Bulls, but they come to see the stars. And most of the teams, ironically, market themselves behind the stars. Here in Washington, where I've lived for 40 years, the team is you know, under the previous owner had won a championship from 1979 on. They probably ever made the playoffs. And they would say, come see Orlando with Shaq and Penny, come see Chicago. They were marketing the other teams. You know, they were walking saying, come see, even though our team isn't that good, come see the stars. And I think this is a star-driven league. And there aren't that many stars, George, in the NBA today. Maybe it may not be more than 10 or 12 real stars. Um, and I think it's important that the union protect those players because those are the guys that bring in the fans. David, I know you have some strong feelings about youth summer basketball, the parents, the coaches, the number of games, the administrators, the runners. T talk to us a little bit about your concerns as it relates to that basketball community. I mean, I think there's some great functions that summer basketball serves. You know, if there's kids at the place, you know, take them off the streets and, and give them, you know, an organized game to play. But I think it's become such big business. And the coaches, instead of being coaches, have become facilitators for players going to certain colleges or going with certain agents. And I'm not concerned about that from a competitive standpoint because at this point in my career, I'm only going to sign five more clients. So I'm not worried that I can't, you know, I can't have access to the players. But I think that, I think that, um, I think if a player plays 100 games when he's in high school in the summer, he's getting used to losing. And he accepts losing. You have to learn to accept it. You don't want a great player to learn to lose. You don't want a great player getting used to losing. You want him to keep that, that special edge. Um, that's why people in boxing or tennis or golf are very careful about their schedule. Like they only play a certain number of weeks in a row. You know, they try to keep that competitive edge. Tiger Woods doesn't play every golf tournament on the, on the circuit. And Roger Federer doesn't play every tennis match on the circuit. He's really careful that he gets himself ready to play on clay, and he gets himself ready to play on grass. If he played as many matches as the young kids playing basketball, people would start getting used to beating him, and he wouldn't have that dominance. Uh, I think that's what, one of the things that makes great players great is the psychological dominance they have over their peers. People think they can't beat them. Um, and I think we lose a little bit of that. I think the fact that, um, I think the fact that there are relationships built up, feeder systems, if you will, where certain guys go to certain colleges, 
I think corrupts the whole essence of college basketball. I'm not just go pro. I don't believe I've been I've been a proponent an opponent for many years of um, guys coming out of school early. I think it really hurts the identity of the NBA. I think the NCAA tournament is the single biggest reason that basketball is as popular as it is in America on every level, pro and, and college. And if you look back to 1979 when Larry Bird and Magic played the highest rated basketball game of all time until 1995 when Kevin right came out of high school, almost every major star in the NBA was in the Final Four. You know, you look at Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Olajuwon, Ewing, Michael Jordan, Danny Manning, you know, Larry Johnson, Christian Leitner, Grant Hill. Those were household names, Chris Mullen. People knew how they wore their socks, you know, where they grew up. The casual fan. I'm not talking about the hardcore people who do fantasy basketball trading. And now, when the guys come out, the average fan, taking away LeBron, who's a freak. A freak and a fluke. He's an athletic you know, freak in high school. His games are on in high school. Most high school players don't have their games televised. So when a high school guy comes out, most fans have no idea who he is. And I think that hurts, even though a lot of the great players in the league today did come out of high school, Kobe, LeBron, you know, Garnett, um, I think that I think it hurts the marketability of the league that the casual fans you know, don't know the players better. They don't allow the NCAA to do that better. And so in my career, I've never advised a player to leave school ever. I've had a lot that have left early. Michael Jordan, James Worthy, you know, Allen Iverson, tons have come out early. But I've never advised a player to come out because I've never had a player that's lost money staying in school. David, uh, you talked about the respect and admiration for, that you have for John Thompson and things that you've learned. What are some of the, the human characteristics of Michael Jordan that, that you've grown to respect and admire over the years? Oh, there are many. First of all, Michael's an individual who has tremendous respect for people in other fields than his own that are successful. So when I watch when I introduce him to Ted Leonsis in 1999, who was the vice chairman of AOL, or he meets, he meets COOs of Fortune 100 companies, he's got a genuine curiosity and desire to learn like what made them successful and, and a respect for the, for the things that they've done well. I think he's an extremely humble person off the court for someone who's achieved what he's achieved. Um, I have tremendous respect for his business acumen, you know, Michael been involved in a lot of business career outside of basketball, car dealerships, restaurants. Um, and he's a very, very bright businessman. He spends his, takes his time. Uh, he takes his time to learn, to learn and study the things he's involved in. Um, I think he's got a very, very high level of, of business acumen. I think he's going to surprise a lot of people now that he's the majority owner of a team, not someone who's working for a team and has to suffer through the mistakes that the owner makes, you know, when he's president or, or minority owner. Now it's all on him, and I think he's going to surprise people how astute he is you know, as an owner. Um, I think he's an incredibly loyal person. Uh, but me, that's one of the things I respect most about him. I mean, Michael could have had anyone in, 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 in the world represent him. He could have had a big Hollywood agency, a PR agency, you know, a, a bigger sports company than, than Fame, which is small. And you know, he stood by me for my entire career. Probably not enough words that I could write or, or say that would express my appreciation to him for his loyalty. Um, you know, at, at, when I signed him, I was 33 years old, probably a little cocky. 
maybe a little you know, less intelligent than I hope became later on. Uh, and I thought I was doing some really cool things with Lee Jordan and Brand Jordan. And, you know, after a few years, I, I got the message. Like, I was lucky just to be on the team. I felt very fortunate to be on sort of Team Jordan, to be a, you know, an important player on his team, someone that he looked to for advice. And I think that maybe the most important thing that I did for Michael wasn't making a lot of money or helping him make a lot of money. I was teaching him how to be a smart businessman. That's the thing I'm the most proud of. David, you had phenomenal success as a, as a player representative, and all of a sudden you call time out, you decide, hey, I'm going to sell my business, and then you, you, you let that time out uh, run for an extended period, and all of a sudden you decide to come back. Tell us about the thought process that went into that. I sold the business in 1998 because we got what I would consider like a godfather offer. We were approached by three or four companies to sell. It had never been my, it wasn't in my imagination to sell a personal services business. Um, but in 1998, on the eve of a lockout, you know, we felt that the winds were changing, the climate of representing players were changing. In part because of the weight scale had, homo had homogenized the abilities of an agent. Our clients had earned their peers by an average of 17% over a long period of time. Wow. And all of a sudden, and, and where we got that, George, we went back and took every rookie we had from the early 80s and said, Dennis Scott was the fourth pick in 1990. If we had signed him last, and we took with the guys three picks ahead of him, three picks, what should he have made? That's the, they call that slotting. Our clients outperformed the slots by 17%. Wow. And so we were like the Warren Buffett of agents in basketball. Our clients by far made the most money. Um, and now they put in a system that said, no matter how good you are, it doesn't matter. We're just going to make the same. You know, if you need to go number five and you pick my daughter, who's 13 years old, she's going to get the same deal that Bob Wolf's going to get. Uh, I think that's an absurd system. Um, but that was the system they put in. I think cheating began to increase because of that, because people couldn't differentiate themselves. They, they would sign players because they would offer them inducements that were illegal and the union didn't have the didn't have the resources to police it. And so the whole climate was changing. And so we got offered a chance to sell the company. You know, I thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I sold it. And, and then we grew it. We bought 14 other agents. I bought my biggest competitor, who's a very good friend of mine named Martin Tellum. I bought three baseball agencies. I bought a football agency that represented Jerry Rice and spawned a young executive named Ben Dogger, who's probably the number one football agent in the country right now, who works with Tom Condon. Um, and I just genuinely didn't like managing, being the CEO, chairman CEO of an enormous company where I didn't have as much time as I liked to spend with my clients. That's what, that's what I enjoyed. So I stepped down uh, probably in 2001 from being the chairman of this large group. Um, and I really had no interest in signing more rookies at the time. So I did only saw one player in a five-year period, which was Sam Cassell. Uh, and I was having great time working with a smaller group of players, spending more time with them. I didn't have to report to anyone in the corporate structure. Nobody reported to me. I really enjoyed that. And then in 2007, the company that had bought us became Live Nation, got out of the business of sports. So I got what was left of the company back. And ironically, the same year, uh, I was invited by Coach Thompson, Georgetown third, John Thompson the third, to meet Jeff Green. 
uh, I really wasn't sure I wanted to represent any more rookies. But when I met Jeff, it was like a breath of fresh air for me. Really, very low-key, intelligent young, young man. He comes from a great family. I love his mom and dad. Um, and the very first thing I told him when I met him, the first bit of the meeting, was not to hire an agent. He came out as a junior. I said, you can't hire an agent until you see where you're going to go in the draft. Coach Thompson said to me, David, please don't try to convince us to go back to school. I'm fine with it. I said, well, I'm not trying to convince him to do anything except to find out whether he's going to go high enough to justify coming out. And so he ended up going number five. Uh, and that sort of reaffirmed, I guess, my faith in that there are players who represent the old-fashioned way. You're not buying them. Uh, you're not recruiting them when they're, 19, when they're 13 years old. You know, it was, it was a very interesting comment last year. People didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but, you know, the number one pick in the draft last year was Kyrie Irving, went to Duke. And um, you know, we had hoped to meet Kyrie Irving, but because he had broken his toe, Coach K specifically asked us not to talk to him or his, or his family, his father, uh, until the season was over. Um, and he signed actually with a, with a young guy who used to work for me. And after he signed with this gentleman, LeBron came out publicly and expressed how disappointed he was that Kyrie didn't sign with this group because he'd been recruiting them since he was 15 years old. And that's really a statement of where the industry is. You know, people identify these young players. I don't, I don't spend 1% of my time recruiting. I spend all my time taking care of the players that are already in the Fane family. Um, and so Jeff Green sort of reaffirmed my belief in human nature that you could sit back and not have to go to 40 games a year watch these players and write letters and, uh, and make promises he could still get old-fashioned guys the right way. And so we got we got Jeff Green that first year in 2007. In 2008, we signed Roy Hibbert. In 2009, we signed um, Tony Douglas from Florida State. And then the following year, we signed Evan Turner and Greg Monroe. So we have five great young players. My hope is to sign five more and uh, have a little club of ten young players. And that's it.